A warning, some of the subject matter in this episode of How Sound may not be suitable for some listeners. Okay? All right. Down in Sam Brown's cellar, there's a box. Several boxes, actually. They're chock full of research materials that she needed for a documentary. And I remember you specifically saying, my stomach is upset. I have to go to the box. Really? Oh, yeah. You would talk about having to go to the box. I have to go to the box like it was a chamber of snakes. Well, yeah, it is. It was. Yeah. Can you show me the boxes? Sure. For full disclosure, I should tell you Sam and I are partners. We live together. This is the very scary basement with lots of things in it. The documentary Sam produced is called A Life Sentence, Victims, Offenders, Justice, and My Mother. She produced it with Jay Allison in 2016. It won an award at Third Coast and was aired on This American Life. Here's an excerpt from the opening. There's no way to ease into this story, so I'll just start. In 1994, my mother was the victim of a violent crime. She was 55 years old and living alone in Nyack, New York. On the evening of September 21st, a stranger came into her backyard. The stranger attacked her from behind. Five hours later, he left her lying on her bed, hands and feet bound with tape. Alive, she survived. Whatever horrible thing you imagined happened to her in those five hours likely did, I still find it hard to believe, to accept what she went through. I know that a lot of people have been the victims of crimes. I've had my car stolen, my apartment broken into. I felt violated after those events. But what happened to my mom was unimaginable, undigestible. What happened to her changed our view of the world. When Reginald McFadden was arrested and charged with the crimes against my mom, my feelings shifted from terror to outrage. I wanted someone to take responsibility for what went wrong which is how I ended up testifying in front of a Senate Judiciary hearing in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I would like to thank Governor Ridge, Attorney General Priate, Chairman Greenleaf. That's me in February 1995 in front of a panel of Pennsylvania senators and a room full of reporters, and I'm pissed. I am here today because last July, Reginald McFadden, a convicted murderer, was released from a Pennsylvania prison. It turned out that the guy who randomly attacked my mom was a convicted murderer, and his life sentence without parole had been commuted. After 24 years, he walked out of prison in Pennsylvania and within days moved to Nyack, New York, less than a mile from where my mother lived. On September 21st, while my mother was taking out her garbage, Reginald McFadden... Just take your time. Reginald McFadden brutally attacked, then beat, robbed, repeatedly raped, and kidnapped my mother during a five-hour ordeal. Now, because I live with Sam, I know how gut-wrenching reporting this story was. For three years, Sam waded through the details. Details of how a Pennsylvania governor's race was upended. Details about the radical changes to the Pennsylvania prison system, and most importantly, the painful details about how lives were drastically altered, including Sam's, but especially her mom's. So this is a box of videotapes. 
it's, I don't know, there's easily 18 or 20 different VHS tapes in here. Um, because What's that's, that one say? Well, uh, this one says excerpts, ABC, NBC, CBS. Um, yeah, there's all different things like the Senate Judiciary hearing tape, so copies of the tapes when I testified in front of the Senate Judiciary hearing, and then this is a red Converse high-top sneaker that my mother was wearing the night she was attacked and was returned to her with the evidence. Here is a bag of cards and things that my mom got after she was attacked and came home. I, this is something she gave me after I finished the piece. Now that I've finished the piece, she keeps giving me things related to it, and we're supposed to have a bonfire someday and burn them all. But then here are the big bins, and these are just filled with photographs and transcripts from the court case. When Sam finished her documentary, and it first went up on transom.org, where she works, she thought, okay, I'm done. But the staff at This American Life heard the story, and they asked to air it. Sam, of course, said yes. And then came the fact-checking. Did you have any idea you were going to be fact-checked? Was that something that was in your mind as you were producing this piece? No, not at all. I approach it with a little bit of an aggressive attitude. Christopher Swatella is a fact-checker at This American Life. He worked on Sam's stock. I sort of assume that what I'm reading is probably wrong, and I have to go through the manuscript and prove that it's right. It meant having to go back to the box. It did. It did mean that. It did. Yeah, that's a good point. I wasn't done with the box. This is How Sound, the backstory to great radio storytelling. How Sound is a co-production of PRX and Transom. I'm Rob Rosenthal. On this episode, fact-checking a life sentence. Both Sam and Jay were thorough in their attention to the facts in a life sentence. I know because I saw Sam painstakingly track everything. But a fact-checker is indispensable. Someone like Chris offers a fresh set of eyes and some serious puzzle-solving skills. Well, fact-checking is a puzzle. So, like, you do a story, and you have your sourcing and your material, and you have the way you saw it. And it's my job to like kind of go through it and be like, why did he see it this way? And is that the best way to see it? And is there another way to look at it where he's not seeing something that I am that makes the story better, um, makes the story more accurate, makes it more responsible? When Christopher starts digging into stories, he says he tries to learn as much as possible about the topic at hand. It's almost like he's re-reporting the story using a fine-toothed fact-checker comb. Because every little bit of information just might, you know, uncover something that, you know, the reporter didn't know or the producer didn't know. So Sam got word that she was going to be fact-checked. And the first step was to send the script to Christopher. He says his first read-through took three hours, partly because as he read, he made note of what documents he needed from Sam. Hey, can you send me this? Hey, can you send me this? Hey, can you send me this? I was just trying to, like, think about what it is I would need to get started. Court transcripts, any of those VHS tapes that we had digitized, he asked for copies of those. He asked for um, any articles that 
were written that I had related to the piece. Christopher meticulously poured through the documents, corroborating the facts in Sam's script. In fact, he annotated the script with so many footnotes, it looked like a PhD dissertation. Yeah, that's the job. But Christopher didn't just need all the articles and records Sam collected. I also needed to send him contact information for every person who appeared in the piece, but then there were people who weren't in the piece itself. And so anyone I spoke to who provided me with some insight, um, uh, I would I would give Christopher their email address, their phone number, and tell him what I talked to them about. And she spoke to a lot of people, politicians, journalists, former prisoners, academics, family of the perpetrator, her own family. And that's where the notebook came in. Sam was a fastidious note taker. You should see this notebook. One big old notebook with everything in it. She says it was her saving grace. Anytime I made a call or read something that I thought was interesting, I would take notes in one single notebook. So Sam assembled all the contact info for Christopher and sent it, which made her nervous. Not because Christopher would talk to people and discover she hadn't gotten things right. Now, what made her nervous was the subject matter Christopher would talk to people about. Remember, a life sentence was largely about the brutal attack her mother survived. Even Sam and her mom had trouble talking about it, understandably. I've already told you this isn't an easy story to tell. It won't be an easy one to listen to. I suppose I could start with how the system failed or with McFadden's family in Philadelphia. I could start with the thousands of prisoners whose lives were affected by McFadden. Or I could tell you about the political careers, both launched and destroyed. But instead, I think I'll save those parts and start where I usually start, which is with my mother. And how are you feeling about today? Well, I'm curious what you're going to ask me about. Well, I thought today we would talk about September 21st. Um, I have to say I'm feeling nervous about talking about because I don't know that you and I have ever sat across from each other and had this conversation. I guess for me it's... It's easier when I'm talking to strangers or when I'm just talking about um, how I survived. But when I tell a, a loved one, it's much deeper. It just goes deeper into what really happened to my spirit, my soul. Are you, are you, um, are you okay to do this? I'd like to try. I'd like to try. <laughs> I'd like to try too. And but I I worry about it being hard for you, you know? Like I I guess I worry that it will bring it to the surface in a way that maybe it hasn't been or doesn't have to be or that might be hard for you. No, I think we need to try this because we've decided to do it. And we're not quitters, are we? <laughs> Let's try it. Think about this for a moment. Sam has spent a lifetime with her mother, and the attack was a life-changing incident they shared. They know each other really well. Despite that, you can clearly hear how difficult it was for the two of them to talk. Well, no wonder Sam was especially nervous about Christopher reaching out to her mother to fact-check a horrific crime. 
and to others too, for that matter. And so I think it was maybe me being overprotective of of these folks and feeling like I had already asked them to do a difficult thing. And months later, here comes somebody else who's going to bring it up again. That was hard. I had definitely had a lot of sensitive um, conversations over the years. Um, and the way I generally approach them or pretty much anyone is with the idea that I'm not here to question you or your experience. I'm here to fact check how the reporter and producer conveyed that experience. Um, you know, I do try to be sensitive and ask questions and say, you know, I know this is hard, but it is important that we, you know, discuss it. I, you know, I don't call people up out of the blue. I mean, I'll send them an email. Um, I'll also ask the producer to give the um, source a heads up that I might be in touch. You know, I often preface those kind of conversations with, like, this is going to be broadcast to, you know, however millions of people hear our show. It's better that we talk about this now than after it comes out. As Christopher made his way through the script, checking documents and making phone calls, nearly everything he read was accurate, he says, but a few sections of narration needed to change. One is complicated to explain, but let me give it a try. The man who committed the crime against Sam's mom was Reginald McFadden. Prior to the attack, McFadden was in prison in Pennsylvania. He was serving a life sentence for a murder he committed when he was a teenager. Well, if he was sentenced to life in prison, how did he get out? Well, after 25 to 30 years of a life sentence, lifers can apply for commutation. They have to demonstrate remorse and a clean prison record. McFadden didn't meet that test the first seven times he applied for commutation, but his eighth was successful. Of course, Sam wanted to know more about how commutation works. Near the top of my list of people to talk to were the men who had voted on McFadden's commutation from prison in Pennsylvania. Some background first. In Pennsylvania, the only way out for lifers, besides escape or death, is to have their sentence commuted. Historically, commutation has been common practice in Pennsylvania. It serves as a release valve, a way to control the size of prison populations, reward good behavior, and give prisoners sentenced to life hope for a second chance. Christopher read that narration in the script and checked its veracity. He approved all of it, but not this part. A way to control the size of prison populations. I read that line as like, okay, so commutation is a way to get people out of the prison system. It's like, I had it in my head, prison systems are crowded. They can use commutation to control prison population in terms of size. And when I started talking to the Board of Pardons guys, I was like, oh, so this was a way to use, this was a way to control prison population. And they're both like, no, no, no. We never used it as a way to control prison population. We didn't even really ever see that many um, commutation cases. After the fact check, that line was removed. And there was another moment in this section about McFadden's commutation that needed a change after fact-checking. Republican Ernest Preate was the attorney general for Pennsylvania in the late 80s, early 90s. He was the only person to vote no on McFadden's commutation. I said, I don't, I don't like this guy. I don't think he's ready to go. I'm very, very hesitant to recommend, recommend him uh, to the governor. Preate was hesitant for another reason. It turns out McFadden had ratted on fellow prisoners twice— once during an attack on a guard in a Pittsburgh prison, and then during the violent riots that erupted at the Camp Hill prison in the 1980s. 
the department was recommending him, the Department of Corrections was recommending him. So the, this was part of the payback to, the, to McFadden was, we'll recommend you for uh, a commutation um, because you've been helpful to us in dealing with the riot at Camp Hill. I spoke to several people off the record, academics, prison activists, former Department of Corrections employees. They all mentioned McFadden's role in the Camp Hill riots as a factor in his release. They said things like his commutation seemed like a done deal or that it was rushed through. Some even wondered if McFadden's records had been scrubbed. Despite multiple requests, no one from the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections or their press office would go on record with me to confirm or deny this. That last part, the part about the Department of Corrections not going on record, that had to be rewritten. The Department of Corrections won't comment on it did make it feel like something shady was maybe up, like the Department of Corrections wasn't being upfront about something, when in fact, like, what they were telling me is just that they didn't have anybody around who knew anything about that story back then. So they're not commenting was not because they were trying to hide something, but just because they didn't know because it was so long ago. In the end, here's what Sam said in the This American Life version of the story. Nearly everyone I spoke with mentioned that McFadden's cooperation at Camp Hill helped him get his commutation. That's it. No mention of the DOC. And even some references to hearsay evidence were removed. One other change Sam needed to make was not so dicey. In addition to fact-checking the narration, Christopher reviews quotes. Turns out, this very small detail in a quote from a character in the story was not accurate. When we were uh, very young, the whole family would go in and sing the Mass every day in Old Slavonic, which is a version of Russian. Christopher says he contacted a linguist. He learned that while one version of Old Slavonic became Russian, it's untrue to say all Slavonic became Russian. So in the This American Life version, the reference to Russian was cut. What did it feel like to have someone come in and and just adjust sometimes make just these small adjustments and nuance uh, a, a point that you're making in the story. Like, it's like someone like watching over, sitting on your shoulder and watching everything you're doing. How does that feel? Um, it was an amazing, actually it was an amazing experience to have, and it'll change how I do things in the future, especially when it comes to writing. Um, I felt like what Christopher asked me to, He took my words literally. He read very carefully, and he pulled into focus words that I didn't realize might be misleading or might not be actually, might not be accurate um, in what I was meaning to say. Um, Or, yeah, may leave a listener thinking something they shouldn't be. So he helped it in the end. Like, you, you saw this as help. Absolutely. I mean, um, as annoying as maybe it might have been to have to go to the box and trudge through all this again, really, it was a collaboration and he was making your piece shinier. Absolutely. Absolutely. When's the bonfire going to happen? I don't know. But yeah, my mom um, would like to burn some of the things in the box, some of the articles and the paper. Uh, I think... It will be a good thing to do. I hope we have a big fire pit in the backyard and the neighbors have to call and complain about how high the flames are. That'd be great. (laughs) 
can't encourage you enough to make time to listen to the entirety of a life sentence. The clips featured here barely scratch the surface of the importance of Sam's work. I spoke to Christopher at length about fact-checking, including what he wishes reporters would do to help the process along. Listen to some of those thoughts at the post for this episode of How Sound at transom.org. While you're at the website, Christopher also wrote a fantastic article for Transom about how to fact-check yourself. It's really indispensable. This is How Sound, the backstory to great radio storytelling from PRX and Transom. I had production help from Lily Sullivan. Fortunately, John Barth doesn't fact-check my scripts because nothing would see the light of day, but he sure does help them read better. Thank you, John. Thanks also to WCAI in Woods Hole, the radio center of the universe. I'm Rob Rosenthal. Thanks for listening.